everybody. Hope uh, you all had a wonderful Pesach. I guess uh, everybody was here. You were here. Or you left. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. I know Chabad, uh, the Alter Rebbe Shita, is you only keep uh, one day of Yom Tov, right? Uh, you didn't keep. You don't keep two. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So uh, again, as I always uh, tell you, uh, if there's any topic you want, you want me to discuss, you can send me an email or mention it to me. But today I'm going to talk really, it's almost at random, because it's not really part of a progression, but I want to talk a little bit about uh, birth control, abortion, and uh, sterilization, and uh, ultimately get to stem cell uh, research. Some of you may have heard some of this a while ago, uh, but I think it's been almost almost a year. Uh, and uh, let's first talk about uh, contraception, which is the least difficult, allegedly, uh, birth control. So what is, our, what is our problem there? Our problem is, of course, that there is a mitzvah in the Torah. The very first mitzvah of the Torah is pruervu, to be fruitful and multiply. There is a mitzvah on a Jewish person to try to have children. We really can't say there's a mitzvah to have children. That's not, uh, you know, that's not within your control. But there is, generally speaking, a mitzvah to try uh, to have children. Now, it's interesting. The Gemara says a very strange thing. The Gemara says... The mitzvah of having children, which is pruervu, is a mitzvah on the man. It's not a mitzvah on the woman. Now, that's a... How, first of all, how do you know that? Because since the lashon of the Pasuk is, pruervu umilu esa'aretz v'kiv shuha. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and conquer it. So the term that is used with respect to procreation is kibush. Now, kibush is a term that we use for military conquest. And we know that when it comes to military uh, conquest, women are exempt from any type of combat. Uh, in fact, that was a, that's not really an issue now, because now the issue is yeshiva students. But in the 1950s, the early years of the state of Israel, uh, Ben-Gurion very much wanted there to be a compulsory draft for women, not just uh, if a woman wants to serve in the army. And uh, the Gedolim at the time came out with the pronunciation that that was so conducive to potential immorality that they said it was like Gili Arayas. It was like sexual violation. Which Rabbanim? Oh, uh, Chazunish, or this was only Melzer, really the biggest, uh, the biggest, biggest Gedolim. It wasn't like today where every rabbi signed something. This was really the Briskarov. These were really Gedolim Ador. And they had actually said, Yehoreg al Yavor, that a girl and her parents. Really? Theoretically, I mean, Israel was not going to kill anybody, but they said that you would have to give your life before you let your daughter go to the go to the draft. Uh, this was the psak. And Ben Gurion even asked the Chazonish, "Where does the Shulchan Aruch say that you have to give your life before giving you sending your daughter to the army?" Uh, that's not, you know. So the Chazonish said a very famous statement. This is in the fifth part of the Shulchan Aruch, and I don't, I don't know if you get that. The Shulchan Aruch only has four parts. So what is the fifth part of the Shulchan Aruch? The fifth part of the Shulchan Aruch is an interesting concept. This refers to the intuition that the Gedolim have as to what is right and what is bad. Meaning to say, not everything, you know, people sometimes think, oh, I don't have to listen to a Gadol if I can't find what he says uh, in the Shulchan Aruch. Uh, the truth is, I mean, listen, uh, Certainly, as uh, Chabad Chassid would understand this, I mean, uh, a Rebbe says something, Rebbe is your guide, 
you know, not everything is going to be documented in a written text. We believe that uh, Rebbe has a connection with Hashem and will understand uh, what is right and what is wrong. And uh, even among non-Hasidim, there is something not exactly the same. That's a whole interesting discussion. But there is something comparable to the way uh, non-Hasidim would look at Gedolim, as it were. So the Chazanish encapsulated that expression, calling it the fifth Shulchan Aruch. Uh, so, as a general rule, it is a double. So, eventually, what happened was, just as a matter of history, uh, women are not subject to a compulsory draft, meaning any woman can say, I'm religious. They don't really test her, test her that much. Uh, if a woman wants to serve in the army, she can. But, but even, even if a woman wants to serve in the army, I do not believe she can serve in a combat unit. That's but is it? Yeah. Is, meaning, since the Chazanish organ said that it's not like if a woman goes to the army, she's doing good, right? She's married? No, even if she's no, single. single. Well, the, the, okay, listen. Listen, the Chazanish's psak was it was like Gilea Rice. Now, now, now. I'm, like? Well, uh, it could lead, lead to Gilea Rice. What does that mean in terms of Allah? Which means she's not, uh, according to him, she's not allowed to go to the army. Which means that she's committing Gilea Rice? Well, she's committing what's called Abizrayu, meaning something that leads to Gilea Rice. Now, now, I want to point out, the Chazanish's psaq is not accepted by everybody. I mean, you, you, know, you know that in the Dati Liyumi community, in the, among the religious Zionist community, which are from, these are religious people, uh, they do allow uh, their, their women to go into the army, although most do not go to the army. Most go to Sherut Liyumi, which is national service, like hospitals or, or whatever, whatever it is. So I'm not, I'm not here telling you, if any of you want to go to the army, you know, talk to whoever you talk to about it. I'm not here to give you a psaq that you're not allowed to do it. But the Chazanish, certainly, this goes back to the 1950s. And it's very important to know that the Chazanish very, very rarely ever signed any public pronouncements. He was not like signing things all the time. Uh, this the is one of the few cases. Well, first of all, that's 100%. Actually, it's 100% true. I'm not saying, God forbid, I am not saying every girl that goes to the army is going to sleep around with men. I'm not saying that. But, but, Lamaisa, empirically, it happens quite a lot. It happens quite a lot. Um, the idea that the army is a pristine, moral, pure environment is just not true. Uh, there are righteous people in the army. There's definitely are. There are even Hasidim in the army. There are people who you know, really keep halacha. But it is a very, very tempting and uh, immoral environment. Uh, so, so really, it's not a wild thing. It's not a crazy thing to connect it to uh, Gilea Arayas. It, it has a lot of, it has a lot of uh, truth, uh, truth to it. So then why, why, is, why is that for the woman and not for the man? Well, what, 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 well, basically, if you have, um, well, I, I think the idea was that, that, that women were more vulnerable. Sure. Women are more vulnerable, meaning to say that um, uh, the sexual urge of men is, is, is very powerful, and, and God forbid, you know, there is such a thing as rape and such a thing as other things like that. And generally speaking, women tend, not always, but women tend to be the ones that are victimized. Uh, by those things, so therefore it was thought to keep them out of the, out of the the, the army. Um, but be it as it may, going back to the main topic, since women do not fight in combat, and the Torah compares having children to combat conquest, 
So the Gemara says, this is not the Chaznesh, right now I'm back to the Gemara, the Gemara says women are exempt. Very, very strange, bizarre. Women are exempt from the mitzvah of having children. The mitzvah of having children is only on men. Well, go figure. How is the man going to have a child, right? So that means the following. That actually means under the strict halacha, strict, strict halacha, if a woman does not want to have children, that is her right. But I, as a man, am obligated to find a wife who is willing and able to have children. So I have a chiv to find a woman that wants to have children. And um, if I don't try, to, at least try to do that, I have an avera. If a woman on her own, however, decides not to have children, not to get married, she's not necessarily committing an avera because the mitzvah pruervu is on the man. Now, what's the logic of that? Why shouldn't it be on the woman? So I'll give you two reasons that move in opposite directions. One reason is an idea that pregnancy and childbirth are life-threatening. You know, uh, even today, in modern, with modern medicine, a certain percentage of women die in childbirth. And we know that if a woman goes into labor, we treat that as pikuach nevesh, and we violate Shabbos. We drive to the hospital or call a cab or whatever we have to do. So the Torah is never going to tell a woman, you're halachically obligated to put your life in danger. The Torah could say to a man, find a woman who's willing to assume that risk, but the Torah is not going to impose the obligation on the person that is in danger. That's reason number one. Reason number two is almost the opposite. That is, women, again, this is a generalization, women generally have a stronger maternal instinct than men, meaning a woman's desire for children is usually more powerful because of a biological clock. You know, a man can figure he has, he can do it at 90 or, or whatever, whatever it would be. So the Torah does not put a mitzvah on a woman because this is something that she would naturally want to do anyway. The Torah puts a mitzvah on the man because the man needs a prod, the man needs a goad, the man needs to be pushed into fatherhood more than perhaps a woman is pushed into motherhood. Now, again, this is a generalization. Obviously, individual cases may differ, but this is kind of a general idea. But bottom line is, though, that reason number one is because it's dangerous. It's a, phys it's a physical danger. Right? So these are two reasons. But whatever the reasons are, I mean, these are speculations. Uh, the only thing we know from the Gemara is that women are exempt. Yeah. Um, regarding what you just said about women being more inclined. Is, yeah. But is that an inherent part of a woman, or is that due to the way in which you're socialized? Well, you know, yeah, that's always, gonna, that's always going to be the, the, the question, but, but I think Judaism believes it is inherent. Remember that the woman's very name, the very name, which is her essence, is Chava. First woman is Chava, Eve, Chava. And Chava means the mother of life, meaning to say motherhood is the definition of what she is. that motherhood is
So uh, there may be women who don't want to have children. Yes, for sure there are. But that that itself may be a societal societal conditioning, rather than something that's that's intrinsic. And I, I don't want to get into the polemics, but you know this this is a well discussed, well documented phenomenon uh, of what second stage feminism and the like, or post feminism, in which uh, many women who put off having children because they wanted a career and they pursued a career and they became successful and then at some point it became too late for them uh, to have children. Uh, you know, there's a lot of regret for lost opportunities and, and, and the like. Things that were not important to them in the 20s and 30s uh, became very, very important in the 40s, in which, in which case it gets more difficult than in the 50s, in which case it's more or less not that possible at that point. So uh, there's a lot of discussion here that, that a lot of times, you know, George Bernard Shaw said, not about women, about people, that it's a pity that youth is wasted on the young. They don't know what to do with it, meaning uh, when we're young, uh, we make all sorts of decisions that when we're older, we realize uh, we're not the right decisions, but we don't have the energy or the strength or the ability to revisit or correct uh, those decisions. So the whole gift of youth is wasted on, on, on young people. Uh, yeah. Why is the fact that it's dangerous for the woman in childbirth the reason that it's submitted for the man and not the woman? No, no, because like this. I mean, God wants there to be children in the world, that's for sure, but, but God cannot tell a person, you must endanger your life. So by, by not giving the woman the mitzvah, it's basically saying that she makes the choice and then the husband you know, chooses the woman that wants to, make that, wants to make that choice. Okay, but be it as it may, since husband and wife do function as a team, I'm go we're going to be assuming that you know, they both want to do this. So how many kids does, do you have to have to fulfill pru or vu? Like how many kids? So it's interesting. The Gemara says a son, one son and one daughter, right? One son and one daughter, you or you or your husband, whoever it is, you have fulfilled the mitzvah of being fruitful and multiplying. Now, this is interesting, one son, one daughter. Well, that may sound like minimal. On the other hand, if you keep on having daughters or keeping having sons, you, know, you haven't done the mitzvah yet. So 10 girls, not enough. 10 boys, not enough. You gotta have one boy, one girl, okay? Now, so the question that will come to you is this. All righty, so how come religious Jewish families are so big? I mean, all right, some of them have like, you know, 10 boys in a row, okay, so, so they got to go for the next one. But I mean, there are some people that have a son and a daughter right away. Some people have twins right away, a son and a daughter. So why do you have to keep on going once you have a son and a daughter? So the answer is, because there are actually two different mitzvahs in having children. There is a Torah mitzvah of having children. That's pru or vu. That's in Genesis and Bereshis. But then there is a statement in the Nevi'im, the Navi Yishayahu, in which, and of course as a prophet, he is speaking in the name of Hashem. And Yishayahu says, Lo tohu bera'ah. Lo tohu bera'ah. Create. He did not create the world to be desolate. And the last two words are the most important. La sheves yitzara. He formed the world, la sheves, to be populated. 
and this is often referred to in rabbinic literature as the shorthand prophetic commandment of Lashevis. And what that means is that even though the Torah commandment of Pru or Vu one fulfills with a son and a daughter, but there's a mitzvah, again, I'll talk about birth control in a few moments, but there's generally a mitzvah to keep on going because of the Indian of Lashevis. Now, you may ask me, so if you got to keep on going, what's the point of saying you've done pru or vu after a son and a daughter? It doesn't mean anything. Well, it does, because we'll see that when it comes to contraception, you'll see that a very big dividing line will often be, do you already have a son and a daughter? Meaning, once a couple has crossed the pru or vu finish line, and it's only a question of extending the race, through La Shevet, there is much more, it's not absolute leniency, but there's going to be much more halachic leniency in a La Shevet issue than there would be in a pre-Pruervu issue. So, so one of the most important things that a rabbi will always have to discuss with the couple is do you already have a son and a daughter. But again, I'll get into the specifics in a few moments. Yeah. So you said the proof text is saying how the world shouldn't be desolate. Mm -hmm. But now there's over 7 billion people in the world, so I don't think that's exactly a problem. Yeah, I, so yeah, then, mm -hmm. yeah, I understand. What, uh, yeah. So then what does it mean by desolate? Because clearly that's not an issue. Well, if you think about it, you know, it depends how you define desolate. Uh, uh, if you think about uh, the number of Jews in the world, if you think about the number of observant Jews in the world, meaning to say, you can have a world full of a lot of people, but they're not necessarily attuned to the will of Hashem. And in that sense, even an overpopulated world may be a desolate world, may be empty in many ways. And when we add uh, Jewish people who will keep the Torah to the world, we are in fact inhabiting the world in a positive, in a positive way. Uh, you know, uh, I'll tell you two stories about this. Um, one story was a woman uh, was going in Cholomoid. Actually, it's a Cholomoid Pesach story, although it's not this year. It's a story maybe 10 or 15 years ago. A woman was taking a bus uh, to go somewhere for Cholomoid, a Cholomoid uh, trip with her kids, and she looked totally exhausted. And she brought 10 children on the bus. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You don't even count the children. And she was plotting. And the bus driver said, why don't you leave half of them at home? And she said, I did. Uh -huh. OK, meaning there are 20. There's only 10 out of 20. OK, so that's uh, one thing. Uh, that's, that is a joke. Yeah, although it's probably, probably you know, the truth is it's true. I mean, I, I personally know families that have 20 children. I mean, I, uh, I, mean, I, I know families. It's not like just a, uh, it's not just a legend. Of course, they cheated because a few of them were triplets. I think they had two pairs of triplets and, and one pair of twins. So, you know, at that point, it's fewer births. Um, now, the second, the second story is a little bit more sarcastic, uh, in which a, a person, uh, he, was a, he was actually a journalist. He's a religious journalist. And he was waiting in line in the airport with a lot of kids. And the kids were a little rowdy. And there was a woman from Germany who was very prim and you know, smartly dressed. And the woman was looking very disapprovingly at all of these religious uh, kids with their tzitzes out and everything else. And she said to him, um, uh, with a kind of a clenched uh, lip, it's amazing how people feel they can interfere in personal decisions. He says, 
uh, why don't you practice the contraception? You know, don't you have enough? And he looked at her and he said, when I get up to six million, I'll stop. Uh, you know, so, so the truth of the matter is, the issue of overpopulation is an, is an interesting issue to discuss, but uh, Jews really uh, do, not, do not frankly have the burden of that. Uh, we, we have been decimated. Uh, our, our reproduction rate overall is relatively low. Actually, it is very, very low. I mean, obviously, religious Jews have a higher reproduction rate uh, and, and the like. Huh? Have we reached that six million? No. Still not. Well, well, what, what do you mean? Have we reached six? I mean, there are more than six million Jews in the world. I know, but have we replaced the Holocaust? No, no, we, yeah. we have, we have not, we have not. And uh, the tragedy also is that the abortion rate in the Jewish community, you know, the non-religious Jewish community, is is relatively high. It's pretty high. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the abortion rate in Israel per uh, capita is higher than the United States. We have a very, very high, high abortion rate in Israel. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you think about, I mean, people have calculated it. I don't have the exact numbers. Uh, the number of babies that have been lost through abortion, including the children that they might have had, and even the grandchildren by now, uh, you actually have a number that's approaching 6 million. Uh, so. I know it, it hurts people's feelings when you compare other things to the Holocaust. You know, you have to be very careful with Holocaust comparisons. Uh, but really, a, a Jewish abortion is, is really kind of a, a silent Holocaust. Now, I, I'll get into abortion shortly. I don't want to get ahead. I just want to say that there is an organization here in Israel called Efrat. And okay. don't confuse it with the city. The city is also Efrat, but that's a different thing. Efrat uh, gives aid to single mothers or really any, any woman who feels she cannot take care of her uh, baby, unborn baby. Uh, unborn baby, and uh, they will provide financial assistance, they'll provide uh, medical care, psychiatric care, and even help with adoption and uh, placement to try to convince the woman that uh, you know there is help for her and there is help for the baby that she can give birth to and uh, she shouldn't be abandoned and, uh, and therefore try to dissuade her uh, from abortion, and uh, in uh, in America, there's in, in the U.S. There's a comparable organization that's called In Shifra's Arms, ISA. They have a website, In Shifra's Arms. Remember, because Shifra was Yochevet. Remember, Shifra yeah. was the midwife that gave birth to uh, that helped Jewish women give birth to to babies. Shifra and Pua. So this is a good point because you know uh, a lot of women seek abortion because they're very desperate. They're, they're poor, they're abandoned, they're without resources, they're without help, they don't know what to do. It's a very serious problem. So to simply be against abortion and that, then leave these women to suffer uh, is a very cruel thing. Uh, so if you're going to be against abortion, which you know, Halacha says you should be against abortion, generally, generally, you have to couple it with giving the women the help that they need to either be able to raise their child or, or, if not to raise the child, at least give the child a home. Uh, there are many, many couples that want to adopt and uh, they would raise the child. So sometimes a, w- a woman says, I could never give up my child for adoption. <laughs> but, so, so instead, get an abortion. I mean, that, you know, that, that doesn't make a, a lot of sense. Yeah. Okay, I was going to say something else, but on that, yeah. um, I mean... 
like you have to take in mind the psychological component to it that the if you aren't ready to have a child not you know maybe you can't afford it maybe it's just like something that you just couldn't you're not ready for in your life and you know in addition to you know nine months of carrying it and the everything that'll happen to your body and all the postpartum changes and everything then and then to know that that child is out there somewhere in the world that has to cause i mean obviously not for everybody but it has to cause a certain degree of psychological distress and so to to help that woman's psychological situation wouldn't it be better to put that in precedent well, uh, well, listen, I, I, I do understand the psychological distress that you have a child out there, you know. Uh, on the other hand, you know, there's psychological distress in aborting as well. I mean, uh, women who abort uh, report, again, some, some report nightmares. Uh, they report uh, when they see uh, children that would, would have been the age of their aborted baby. You know, they break down sobbing. So... You know, again, as a man, I don't want to sound callous. I understand the psychological pain in both sides of the equation. I really do understand it, and I, or, well, I can't say I mean I understand it, but I, I, I can, I, I can feel it, and I can, under, I can understand where it's coming from. And uh, you know, I'm not here to describe any woman that gets an abortion as an evil, bad person. Uh, but once again. Uh, life, for whatever the reason that Hashem decreed it, sometimes gives us very, very difficult situations. And uh, there's not always going to be an easy answer that's going to bring happiness to everybody that's involved. All I can say is, there are women that have born children that have the same problem. The kids already born. Now, nobody would say, for example, nobody would say, I could kill a baby that's born because of all these difficulties. So if halakha kind of recognizes you know, life from an earlier point, then it might be like killing a baby in which you just, you know, you can't do that. You gotta think of something else uh, to deal with the, uh, with, with the problem. So, uh, I, I, mean, I'll get, I'll, I'll, I mean, I'll get to all these things. These are just preliminary, preliminary uh, thoughts, thoughts about this. I did want to uh, ask yeah. before that. Yeah. Regarding like the ethics of I guess a little bit not because you mentioned like in the case of people that are considering abortion because they can't afford it. Yeah. Um, I have like there are some support services, but what yeah. if it's in the case of like I mean that situation or even like a family where they already have a certain amount of kids, but financially, like financially, emotionally, everything, if they continue having children. Then okay. it will cause like a huge. No. Okay, so that's really kind of uh, again. again. Not only like yeah. the life of the new child, yeah. but then to the other children, like it'll lead to a huge decrease. Oh, okay, so, so again, it's very, very important. It's extremely important that you have a, a fixed, bright line in your mind between birth control and abortion. Meaning to say, contraception, I'm, I'm going to flesh this out now, contraception may absolutely be justified based on that. Abortion is a different type of thing, you see. Uh, to prevent a pregnancy is a very, very different halachic shaila than to terminate a pregnancy. And uh, the types of things you're talking about can very well be a basis for uh, 
a decision not to have any more children. Okay, so we're going to separate this into two different boxes. Contraception, which is birth control, is preventing a pregnancy. Abortion is terminating a pregnancy once it occurred. Okay, these are two different halachic shilas. So let's first talk about contraception. Uh, so this comes up in a lot of ways. There, there are two different scenarios, actually, where, where contraception comes up. One is often at the beginning, I'm sorry, often at the beginning of a marriage, a couple says, we're not ready for kids yet. Either we're finishing... Sorry, I don't no, well, well, one is one is prevent birth control. One is preventing a woman from getting pregnant. Yeah, contraception is birth control. Birth control is a form of contraception, but it's not the only form of contraception. It's just like yeah, contraception means preventing a pregnancy. Abortion is terminating a pregnancy. Yeah. Okay. So now we're going to talk about preventing a pregnancy. So um, sometimes people come at the beginning of a marriage. They say, you know, we're not ready yet. We're stressed out. We're still finishing school. We don't have enough money. That's even before they have any kids. And sometimes after they have a kid, they want to wait a little bit uh, till the next uh, child. Or if they have a larger family, they think it's going to overwhelm us financially or whatever it is. So I'm not going to give you concrete guidance. All I can say is that halacha does recognize a few things. It does recognize psychological stress. It does recognize an idea that children sometimes need spacing between births so you can devote more time to one child, is like etc. Say again? Is there like, like details, like the limit on the spacing or spacing in general and every parent decides? No, no, the, the spacing would generally be between, well, between six months to 18 months, meaning it, it, you're talking about uh, a year or two, you know, between a half a year and, 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 and two years and the like. So these are things that have to be discussed with the Rav, and as I said before, there's a lot more flexibility after you have the son and the daughter than in the beginning. So in the beginning, there may be less of a reluctance, or le more of a reluctance to give a dispensation. After the son and the daughter, there is much more flexibility. I will also say that if the marriage is not stable, if the marriage is not stable, there's a lot of fighting, they're not sure they want to stay married, that would also be grounds for not having children because if, God forbid, a couple has to get divorced, it is a lot better, a lot better if they get divorced before they have children than after they have children because once you have children, children, well, they're going to be hurt either way. They're going to be hurt by a, a, a couple that's fighting in the house and they're going to be hurt by a couple that's divorced. So we would counsel, I mean, again, I've done this many, unfortunately, many times, uh, when you have very precarious marriages, uh, birth control would be, would be the appropriate response. But there's a second question here. Let's assume that the rabbi or the posek or the, the rebbetzin, the, the halachic advisor, has concluded that there's a reason to defer having children. There's then a secondary issue. What is the method that is permitted and not permitted? You see, two different issues. Issue number one is, is there a justification to either stop having children or delay having children? That's issue number one. Issue number two is, if there is a justification, 
What are the methods? And let me explain why methods are very problematical here. There are certain methods that halacha does not allow you to do. Certain things halacha does not allow you to do. Remember we discussed a few weeks ago uh, about pets, you know, sterilizing your dog, neutering uh, your dog and her cat. Well, humans are the same thing. Uh, you're not allowed to engage in what is called sterilization or for the man, castration. That would mean the following. Halacha does not allow a vasectomy, a male vasectomy, because that's cutting the uh, tubes that, that bring down the sperm, the spermical cords, they're called. And halacha does not allow for a woman what is called tubal ligation. Once again, that would be you know, severing the connection between the ovaries and the, the uterus or, or whatever, whatever it would be, tying the tubes, the fallopian tubes. So because that's called sterilization. Now, I'm not talking about, God forbid, if, 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 a, if a man has a testicular cancer or a woman has ovarian cancer or hysterectomy. Obviously, if there's a life-threatening illness, you can remove whatever you have to remove. I'm not talking about that. But as a contraceptive device, if it's simply a matter of I want to be sure I don't have any kids, so let's do a vasectomy, or a woman ties her tubes, ties her fallopian tubes, uh, as a contraceptive matter, that is a forbidden method. It Why cannot be done. Because that's, that's considered castration or sterilization, and the Torah prohibits human and even animal, remember we talked about the even animal uh, castration and sterilization. Uh, is forbidden. So that method is kind of off the off the table. Now, the second method that is off the table, although it's a little more tricky, is a male condom. Right? A condom is a common, again, excuse my uh, having to talk about these things, but I want you to understand the area at least. Uh, a male condom is a very popular contraceptive device. Uh, it prevents the sperm from entering the woman's body by the blockage on the male, uh, male organ. Uh, and the reason the condom is forbidden is halacha treats it as equivalent to a masturbation because uh, the seed is supposed to, uh, the sperm is supposed to enter the woman's body. If it does not enter the woman's body, it is the same as masturbation, which is generally forbidden. So a male condom uh, would not be permitted either. So, so we're going to eliminate three common methods. The, uh, from the uh, vasectomy is sterilization. Tubal ligation, tying the fallopian tubes, uh, is also a female. Uh, tubal, one word, tubal, T-U-B-A-L, ligation. L, the second word, L-I-G-A-T-I-O-N, ligation, which is often called tying the tubes. Uh, that's also called uh, sterilization. That's forbidden. And uh, male condom is forbidden because that's treated as masturbation so because the ejaculate is not entering the it's woman's not body. Well, it's, it's, it's being collected in a, in a pouch, right? So it, right, it, it's not leaving his body. Well, it does leave his body. It leaves his body into the, right. into the pouch, right? So that's considered to be a masturbation. Yeah. Um, two questions. One, why vasectomy if it's reversible? Yeah, that, that, well, that, that, that's, a good, that's a good question. Uh, you know, it's, it's reversible. I mean, uh, 
it is reversible. Uh, I think it's a forty percent success rate, meaning actually majority of cases is not reversible. So, so then it's also treated as, yeah. with the case of tubal ligation and yeah. a vasectomy, if you freeze eggs or sperm for later use, yeah. like you're intending to use them, yeah, like surrogate, whatever you just. Not now, then are you allowed to undergo the process if you've already saved it for future use? Vasectomy? Either, either. No, no. See, those processes you can't. What you might be able to do is you might be able to uh, engage in, in, you might be able to use a condom in order to collect sperm for that type of procedure. uh, yes, yes, you you are. I'll, I'll, I'll get to that. Uh, but 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 there would be no hetero, no hetero at all, short of something like cancer, uh, for uh, vasectomies or tubal ligations. Uh, even so if you have children you already. Use it to use later. That's correct. Well. That's correct. In fact, I mean, let me give you an example. I mean, uh, even a single man or a single woman uh, who is beyond, let's say, a woman is beyond childbearing years. She's already had menopause. She's not allowed to have. Now, there's, this is an anatomical idea. You're not allowed to mutilate the reproductive organs, even if you're not going to have children. It's like a separate, a separate issue. Yeah? Um, so you said that a male cannot use a condom because it's a waste of sperm. It's a waste of sperm, yeah. But then if the woman is on birth control, right? Yeah. They I'll, still have right, I'll, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. That's a very good, very good question. That's the next thing. All right. So what methods would be permitted? So the method that's considered to be the best... Why is that wasting Right, 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 right. So, so you're you're hitting you're hitting on a very important Anytime idea. No, that's correct. That's correct. So so I'll, I'll get to it. Okay. 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 So this is uh, you're, you're all you're all saying the right you're all saying the right thing. There's a concept in halacha that as long as the sperm is entering the woman's body, even if it will not result in a pregnancy, it is not treated as a masturbation. And the, and the proof of this is that a man can have relations with his wife who's had a hysterectomy, a man can have relations with his wife after menopause, a man can have relations with his wife during much of the, much of the when she's pregnant, and when she is not able to have, uh, I mean, during much of the month, uh, she's not able, to, it's not her fertile period anyway. So there is a concept in halacha that as long as the passage of the seed, of the sperm, is not impeded and it enters the woman's body, it is not treated as masturbation, even if it will not result in a pregnancy. And that's very important because halacha recognizes that the sexual act itself is considered to be inherently legitimate between husband and wife. That is why the birth control pill is a permissible method of contraception, because the birth control pill inhibits ovulation on the part of the woman, but it does not impede the sexual intercourse itself. Now, what is the problem with the birth control pill? Well, uh, there are problems, obviously. Anytime a woman is taking a lot of hormones, it can wreck havoc with her body in a lot of ways, but there is a little problem, which is very, very minor side effect in the secular world, and it's a catastrophic side effect in the Jewish world. And that is, it causes little bits of breakthrough bleeding in between 
menstrual periods. Now, this is such a minor little thing that it's like little spotting, no big deal, little spotting, you wear a pad. But the problem basically is that that little bit of spotting can make a woman a nida and she might find herself uh, like a nida, like, you know, the whole, you know, for months at a time. So there are newer types of pills which, which mitigate the uh, spotting effect. Now, here in Israel, one thing that's good about Israel is that even doctors who are not religious are familiar with these problems because they have patients who are religious. So here you can kind of get a good, good advice as to how to modulate, uh, modulate the, the effects because breakthrough bleeding is a negligible side effect uh, outside of a halakhically observant uh, Jew. It's like nothing. But it's a big, 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 big problem. Also, there are times where birth control pills are, are contraindicated. For example, if a woman is a nursing mother. Now, it used to be that nursing itself was a natural. Uh, nursing is actually a natural contraceptive, but it doesn't work today that much. Meaning, in the time of the Gemara, a nursing mother could not get pregnant. But today. It can happen because we don't do 100% nursing. Women supplement with bottles and, and other things. So as a result, if a woman is on contraception, she will often want to be on contraception even during nursing. And at that, point, okay. at that point, the birth control pill may not be uh, a, a good method because the hormones may interfere with uh, milk production and, 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 and the like. So uh, there are some problems. Again, I'm not, I'm not here to give you a comprehensive guide. I mean, this is, <laughs> Suffice it to say, none of this is relevant to you at all. Um, I'm just mentioning it so you'll understand the halachic uh, principles. Yeah. So, as far as like when a woman is trying to get approval or permission yeah. to go on birth control, right? What about in the case where it's specifically not for pregnancy prevention, but it's for one of the many other side effects, like? Helping with cramps or acne or like all yeah these yeah other yeah so so let me give you yes yeah, so, so you are correct that a birth control pill because of the, the hormones the production of the hormones can be for reasons uh, that are totally independent of not wanting to have a child even a single teenager could take it whatever it is uh, acne cramps other things uh, well as I say if the woman is a single woman there's certainly no problem because she's not in the children business anyway. Uh, if she's married, it, it actually depends on how serious the condition is. It doesn't have to be life-threatening, but if, for example, uh, the cramps are excruciatingly painful, that's one type of thing. Uh, if the acne is disfiguring, you know, but if it's you know, a minor thing, you know, we don't indiscriminately just say take birth control pills, you know, because we recognize that whatever your, whatever your intention is, it, it's going to have a contraceptive effect. So uh, we try to stay away from it unless there's kind of a real, a real need for it. Now, you know where some people take birth control pills? This is a very interesting question. Uh, this is, t uh, in fact, even the most religious people do it, and it sometimes has very bad consequences. This is the problem of chupas nida. Yeah, sure. You're familiar with chupas nida? Yeah. Chupas nida, you don't want to be a chupas nida. Chupas nida is when you are a nida still the day that you're getting married. Right? In the ideal world, the woman goes to the mikvah a day before, two days before, whatever it would be, and at the time of the wedding, she is tahora, 
and there's no problem with consummating the, the wedding, uh, the marriage, etc. But sometimes a woman could miscalculate her period or sometimes the period could surprise her and she might become a nida two days before the wedding or even on the day of the wedding. And at that point, the whole wedding has to be restructured to follow all of the laws of nida, among other things. Uh, they can't have yichud together. They can't be in the room together, or, or, or the room has to be open, and witnesses have to be in the room with them. But what's even worse is that until she's able to go to the mikvah, the husband and the wife are not allowed to even sleep in the same room. Uh, they have to sleep usually in different houses, and they have to have chaperones, a male chaperone for the man and a female chaperone for the woman. It is very uncomfortable, very awkward. You don't want to have a chupas nida, but sometimes you can't avoid it. So what do some people sometimes do? So if, if a woman sees that her period will probably happen around her wedding and she won't be tahora, so you can actually defer the period by taking, uh, there's a whole protocol where you take birth control pills before the marriage, and that kind of resets your body. Because you can predict. One thing you can do with birth control, you can actually predict when the regular period is going to come. So uh, even in the most religious seminaries, they will counsel uh, women who have chupas nida potential problems to take uh, birth control two months before the wedding to reset. Isn't there something else also you can their, take to push it off? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but it, well, it's all the same thing. It, it resets, and so it, so it pushes it off to a later time. Uh, but the problem, once again, is that once you discontinue it or, or whatever, then you're going to have a lot of breakthrough bleeding, which means to say what you gain in the beginning, but, you know, you push off Chupas Nida, uh, may make life miserable afterwards. So uh, it's a very... Really, again, I'm, I'm not actually not. I'm not. I am not an absolute expert in, in this, but I can just tell you that uh, if any of you will ever wind up doing this before the wedding, uh, talk to a doctor. I mean, you gotta have to get a doctor's prescription anyway, because there can be all sorts of bad stuff that'll happen uh, afterwards that can throw you off for months and months and months, like a, a year uh, after you stop taking it. Yeah. Do you know how common the breakthrough? Is because, like, it used to I be. I've heard. Yeah. Like, I went to college. I had yeah. a lot of friends, and like, I've they never complained about it. Never heard of it. Well, it, it really is just maybe it's so little that it's not you know no no if you're not from like you know it's it's no big deal. Well, I mean, like straight up like. Because, yeah. like, yeah. I mean, like, you see it. Yeah. Well, okay, listen, it used to be very, very common. Now, I, as I mentioned, uh, the pills have gotten reformulated in recent uh, years, so it could be it could be it's less of a problem uh, than it used to be. But it used to be a very, very big, uh, very big problem. So, like, if you're able to, because, I mean, there's like dozens and dozens and dozens of versions. Yeah. So, like, if you're like talking to your doctor and you say that this is a concern and they're able to say, oh, well, this or this type so that's is, good. is going to be yeah. much less of a problem, yeah. then, like, you should. So, go with it, yeah. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yes, yes. All right, so, so the pill is, is a good method. The problem is breakthrough bleeding, and the problem also is that it may be contraindicated for nursing uh, mothers. Uh, method number two that's good is IUD. What does IUD stand for? It's an abbreviation. Intrauterine, IUD is device. IUD. So it's... It's kind of shaped like... 
It's like, wow, that's not good. I'm sorry. It's shaped like that. But it's spring. Now it's, there's all different types. There's plot, like there's plastic, there's rubber, there's like Yeah, the original copper, ones were copper, you know, they have rubber, then they have plastic, types. and it's inserted. And what the IUD does is, it does not interfere at all with the ejaculation, the intercourse. The intercourse, you know, you, you wouldn't even know that it's higher up. Uh, but it does, through a, in fact, the exact scientific principle is still a little uncertain, but apparently it generates a magnetic field of some sort that prevents the sperm from fertilizing the egg. So it does not inhibit ovulation. It's a different process. A birth control pill, a birth control pill prevents ovulation. This prevents the fertilization of the sperm into the egg. So the same effect. And once again, that is a permissible, assuming you have a hedger for contraception, that's the first question, it is a permissible birth control uh, device. Say again? And, and it does not some, some do. Some are really? hormonal and some are non-hormonal. Well, yeah, you can do a non-hormonal IUD. Uh, yeah. Now, it used to be the early, the early IUDs were a very, very uh, serious problem because they caused scar, scar tissue to form in the uterus because you're you know, irritating the There's uterus. There's also like arm implants. Huh? There's also arm implants. Right, like nor plant. Yeah, but the arm implant works as a birth control pill, I think, right? It inhibits it's ovulation. It's, it's a birth control. Right, yeah, but in other words, what it does is it inhibits ovulation. I think so. Well, but also some birth control pills yeah. make it so like you still ovulate, but it makes it so that the lining of your uterus, it can't implant. Hmm, okay. Okay, uh-huh, I see, okay. So the older ones just stopped ovulation, and this just refers to the uh, yeah, lining of the uterus. Okay, yeah. But they're both uh, hormonally based. So whether it's the under the arm or whether it's the oral pill, you are talking about hormones. Yeah, as opposed to the IUD, which can be non-hormonal. But the IUD irritated. Uh, there was some very serious scarring. And in fact, as a result, uh, some women became infertile. Uh, they became sterilized, essentially, because their uterine lining was, was wrecked. And there were some big, big lawsuits in America against uh, against IUD. But but now, Baruch Hashem, the IUD is is a the IUD is a safe is a safe contraceptive method, and halachically, halachically it is permitted. Halachically it is permitted. Uh, however, there's one thing you need to know about an IUD, and that is, the IUD must be inserted through a relatively routine surgical procedure, and it must be removed through a th- surgical procedure. What you need to know is the insertion of an IUD automatically makes a woman a nida. There is a concept in halacha that a woman becomes a nida whenever the opening of the uterus is stretched. Even if there's no blood. Okay, this is a very important rule. Uh, that halacha assumes that when the uterus, uterus opening is expanded beyond a certain length, uh, that there is bleeding even if it's undetectable. And this is a very important rule in the laws of Nida. That is why many gynecological procedures might make a woman a Nida. Now, a pap smear does not because it does not go as far as the uterus. This is very important. I don't want to go into every type of procedure, but procedures that are you know, not in the uterus itself are not going to make a woman a nida. But once it goes into the uterus, then nida may come automatically. So that means 
the insertion of the IUD makes a woman a nida, and if the IUD is eventually taken out after whenever it's taken out, that'll make her a nida as well. So as a result, if you don't want to increase your nida times, you try to have the IUD put in and taken out while you're already in a state of nida, and that way you don't have uh, extra days of separation from your from your husband. Okay, that's so, what you need to know about the IUD. Yeah. Um, Okay, so, okay, first of all, so a man can't use any form of contraception. Uh, well, I'm trying to think. The, the only two ways I know of, now there may be other things, uh, a man cannot do a vasectomy and a man cannot do a condom. Uh, are, there, are there other other things so, a man uh, can do? And I, I'm not aware of it. So, uh, I know that people have been talking for years. I think China has approved a, what they call a birth control, a birth control pill for men. And this is... Uh, but I don't know how, how it works, and it has not been approved in the United States or in Israel. But if, if theoretically, if there would be such a pill, maybe that, that might, be, might work, and the like. Okay. Um, wait, yeah. and so what, besides for what you said, tubal ligation? Yeah, tubal ligation is no good for right, women. Right, so um, yeah. what form of contraception is forbidden for a woman? A tubal ligation. Just that. Yeah, yeah. A woman can take a birth control pill. A woman can have the underarm, the norplan. They used to call it norplan. Is that what they still call it? Uh, whatever. On the, the arm. It's like something it's that. Like an implant it's an implant. You don't have. You don't have to take a pill every uh, day or whatever it is. It's, oh, it's, it's, it can last for a few years. Yeah. Yeah, but like it releases the hormones and it's like you, you use it for multiple years. So it's something going in your blood. Yeah. 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 But an IUD is not the same piece. Yeah, an IUD. But it's like it's yeah. in your uterus. Like it's yeah. in your body. So yeah. it's still releasing yeah. hormones and still blood streams. If you're constantly in need when you have an IUD, why would it be constantly? No, no, no. You're not. Con- no, no. Let me explain this. You're not constantly in need. You're in need. In other words, the insertion makes you a nida. It's like having a period. So you're, oh, only you, when you insert yeah, yeah. him. Yeah, yeah. So you can go, you can go to the mikvah 12 days later. Right. And when they insert it, you're a nida for 12 days. So you're not, you're not a nida the whole time. The most popular kind of the pill? Yeah. Huh? Yes. Yep. Okay. Uh, now, the other method, uh, the, the use of diaphragms and the like... Uh, are more controversial a little bit because a diaphragm might be positioned low enough that it may impede the, eja- the, the ejaculate, so some treat it as masturbation, others permit it, so that's a bit more of a, more of a question. But an IUD is better than a diaphragm anyway, so uh, an IUD is a preferred, even medically, a, a more effective uh, contraceptive, uh, contraceptive device. Okay, so again, I, I don't want to get into uh, all of the gory details, but uh, just understand that a birth control question has two different components. First, is birth control justifiable at all if there's a mitzvah pru or vu and a prophetic mitzvah of Lashem? And that is very easy to get out of hat to throw a row. You know, it, it, it depends. Rav Moshe Feinstein, for example, was very, very strict. He did not want to give head tables for birth control. Uh, he felt that... Uh, the Gemara says, Mashiach will not come till all of the neshamos right. that Hashem creates are born. So when you prevent neshamos from being born, 
you are delaying the coming of Mashiach. He was very, very strict on it. Other rabbis are, are, are uh, more lenient. Uh, but then, once you have such a heter, you then have to discuss the method. Now, generally speaking, it's important to know that people often want a heter because they're stressed out. And once again, you try to sh give them resources that can help them. Uh, you know, talk to parents with large families, uh, friends, support systems. You know, even in the secular world, I, I, you know, I, uh, I taught in a law school for many, many years. And uh, some of my students were women going to law school that had babies. And they would bring the babies to class and uh, whatever it is. And obviously, they were going through the stress of a baby and being in law school, but they managed to do it. So sometimes, you know, you think something is impossible, but you, you connect with people who are able to do these things, and that gives you chizuk, and that gives you encouragement. And uh, that's why it's important to, uh, part of your education, and I know, Baruch Hashem, you're getting it, is not just what you learn in class, but to hang around families and see the way people can handle all of these different problems or issues, or difficulties, or challenges. Maybe I shouldn't call it problems. Having children not a problem, but it's a, it may be a challenge. And when you see that people can handle it, then you can get a sense that you can handle it. And if you can handle it, then you're able to, uh, you're able to do it. Yeah. Um, so, say you do that. You, like, you insult all your sources. You really explored all the possibilities right. and everything. Yeah. And you were to get pregnant, let's say, outside of marriage, because it could happen inside of marriage. Yeah. More complicated. Yeah. Um, and you're like, if I do not get an abortion, I'm going to be depressed. I'm going to be suicidal. If I go through with this, I'm. Okay, so, so I'm going to, uh, okay, but again, again, I remember I told you, you have to segment abortion and birth control. No, this is I'm abortion, gonna, Yeah, I'm going to talk, I'm, so I'm going to talk about abortion right like, now. Because, yeah. you okay. know, birth control can fail also, yeah, like, right. so, like, if you were in that situation where you're, like, you're fully informed, and you're like, I know if I go through this pregnancy, I'm going to be horribly depressed, and I'm going to be suicidal, and I'm... Okay, so, so let, let me talk about abortion now, okay? Because I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll address exactly that in a moment. Okay, so now let's assume that you've gone beyond uh, birth control, either the birth control failed or uh, you're a single person that either didn't use the protection or, God forbid, may have been raped even, uh, and now you have a pregnancy uh, that is unwanted. And uh, what does halacha say about aborting? So... We start off with the following. We start off with the idea. Now again, that's not where we're gonna end necessarily. That abortion is generally wrong, it's generally forbidden, it's generally against halacha. There is no concept at all of abortion on demand just because I want an abortion. That, that's absolutely the case. Now, the question becomes, are there circumstances where abortion might be justified? And the answer is, there is one circumstance where abortion is justified, and that is pikuach nefesh. Now, pikuach nefesh means the mother's life is in danger if she carries the baby and gives birth to it. Now, the standard case of pikuach nefesh, which is not your case yet, is a medical reason. Uh, the woman is frail. The woman has a heart condition. Uh, the woman has cancer. 
Uh, the woman may get a stroke if she gives, carries the baby, right? So it's very, very clear that the halacha is if this baby will endanger the woman's physical life, there is a mitzvah to abort the baby even at nine months until the baby is born, okay? That's very clear. So that's pikuach nefesh. Now, the interesting question is that pikuach nefesh also has a psychological component and not only a physical component. And that is, uh, it's recognized that psychological stress can be life-threatening, uh, maybe suicidal, etc. It may endanger her or the life of other people, namely her other children, or whatever it might be. So halacha recognizes that if you have a bona fide psychological condition, I don't mean you have to have an official diagnosis, but if the nature of the facts are such that there is a significant risk that she may harm herself or harm someone else. So halacha would consider that to be a bikuach nefesh. That's, for example, how we would look at rape or incest. Let's consider this. You often hear in the general society, people say, I'm against abortion, except in cases of rape or incest. Now, that's a common thing that many people say. Now, if you think about that, that's really that the case of rape and what? incest. Like a father was with a daughter, a brother with a sister. Now, if you think about that, that's really illogical. If I am against abortion, then what gives me the right, you know, to kill this baby because it's rape or incest? I mean, I'm against abortion. It's like killing a person. You couldn't kill a born baby that way because of rape or incest. So the way halacha approaches it is the following. Halacha does not have a rape or incest category. We only have one category. The category is, is there danger to the mother's life? Halacha recognizes that the trauma of how this baby was conceived may be so severe that the mother's life might be endangered. She might commit suicide. In other words, you understand this? It's not a rape or incest exception. It is a bikuach nefesh exception. And as a result, it will differ from woman to woman. Not every woman can say, I want an abortion because it's rape. They tell a story, I don't know if it's true, with Moshe Feinstein, that, uh, and this is really a tragic, I mean, if it, if it is true, it's a very, very tragic story, but it has a, an interesting, happy ending, I'm not sure if happy is the right word, in which a religious high school girl was raped by a black man. The reason I mentioned black is there's a reason I mentioned, uh, mentioned his race. And you can, you know, it's hard to imagine she wanted to really kill herself. She wanted to jump out of a building. She was a religious, number one, this is a trauma for anybody. And number two, she's a religious woman. And it was determined that uh, she was carrying twins. So she was literally suicidal. She wanted to kill herself. Her parents uh, brought her to see Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. And Rabbi Feinstein spoke to her for a few hours. And he told her a, a strange thing that might be very hard to hear. He said, this is such a tragedy and you know, everything, this is an awful thing. But you know that the children you're carrying are Jewish. You know that they're Jewish. You know they have a Jewish soul. And you know that they could be raised to be tzaddikim and gaonim and great, great people. 
Why Hashem gave you this in this way is beyond our ability to understand. But now that you have this, and he actually talked her into understanding that these are still Jewish children that deserve a home. And the story goes, you know, this may be a story. Sometimes these stories are embellished. The story goes, she raised them as a single mother and they became, they actually became two rabbis. They were, they were black, and noticeably black because their father was black, the rapist was black. But she raised them as rabbis. They became rabbis and teachers. And she got a lot of nachas from them. It's a strange story. I'm not sure if... If it appeals to you or you are taken aback by it. But the point basically is that if she was bona fide suicidal, and you, know, you couldn't get her out of this condition, then yeah, an abortion would be justifiable. But you try to help her. You don't just throw in the towel and say, oh, get an abortion. Because, you see, there's another life here. I mean, there's her life which has precedence, right? By the way, halacha, you see, halacha says the mother's life has precedence over the baby's, the unborn baby's life. That's true, because the unborn baby is only a potential, and the mother is an actual. That's very, very true. But you still want to take care of the potential when you can, when you can. Okay, so, that's, so, so halacha does respond to psychological issues. We, we recognize that mental illness is every bit as real as physical illness. But you know, you try to uh, work, work work with it. You don't just dismiss it uh, and the like. Now, what about abortion because of severe genetic defect in the child? Right. We now have all sorts of prenatal genetic testings. Right? You can test even with sonograms, and, but 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 then you go into do genetic testing, amniocentesis, where you take some fluid and you can analyze it. And we could determine now all sorts of things. Down syndrome, spina bifida, trisomy 18, uh, Tay-Sachs, very severe genetic, genetic defects. Uh, so does halacha permit abortion, anencephalic, that actually means born without a front brain, meaning only the only the brain that controls involuntary functions, but no, no capacity of thinking, anencephalic. So, I mean, unfortunately, there's a true... Now, of course, a lot of these, some of these cases, they're spontaneous abortion, meaning the, you know, the baby is not going to come to termize it. So that's just Hashem doing it. But are you allowed to get an abortion because of genetic defect? So the short answer is, that, number one, genetic defect is much too broad of a term. I mean, it includes everything from Down syndrome to, let's say, anis, to, uh, to uh, Tay-Sachs. Now, these are very different things. Uh, abortion of a Down syndrome has no halachic justification. What gives you the right to abort a Down syndrome child? The Down syndrome child can live 50 or 60 years. Down syndrome child is capable of a quality of life. People say Down syndrome childs often have very happy dispositions. I don't know if that's a stereotype, but that's often, often the case. So just because someone has a certain retardation, I'm not sure if you have to use that word any, today, but whatever it is, that's not a hedger to abort. So something like Down syndrome, 
No. Spina bifida, no. These are things you can correct, cleft palate rather, you can, you, could, you can correct. But when we come to Tay-Sachs, that's a very different thing. What is the problem with Tay-Sachs? Tay-Sachs, what is Tay-Sachs? Tay-Sachs is a genetic disease that almost 100% is among Jewish Ashkenazic people, not Spartan. And uh, in order for a child to have Tay-Sachs, both parents must carry the gene. So if both parents are carriers, there's a one in four chance. If both parents are carriers, there's a one in four chance that the child will have uh, the disease. If only one parent is a carrier, there's a zero chance. Well, now we do Doryasharim. Now they have Doryasharim. But let's assume they didn't go through Doryasharim, and the woman discovers in a pregnancy that she has Tay-Sachs. Now, Tay-Sachs is an awful disease. Uh, the child, uh, at this point, at this point, of course, medicine could change, there's 100% mortality by, uh, by age 8 or something before the age of 10. But not only is the kid going to die, but the kid is going to suffer a lot of pain and lose function, lose uh, eyesight, lose hearing, lose ability to move, uh, difficulty in breathing. Right? It's a very, very painful, debilitating disease in which there's a lot of suffering and uh, death is inevitable at a young age. So a woman discovered, that's why Doria Sharon was invented, so that people could do genetic testing before they get married, before they get engaged. That if they're both carriers, they simply won't get married. But let's assume they didn't do that, and the woman discovers. Uh, it's Tay-Sachs. Can you abort? So again, don't confuse Tay-Sachs with Down syndrome. Down syndrome, there's basically no heter to abort Down syndrome. But Tay-Sachs is different. You're sparing the child's suffering. So here we have a huge, huge machlokas. Rabbi Eliezer Waldenberg, who I've mentioned a number of times, he was a great rabbi here in Jerusalem. He died in his 90s, around 10 years ago. And he was the rav and the posek of Sharet Tzedek Hospital. You know, that's the big uh, religious hospital. He actually said that a woman could abort a Tay-Sachs fetus until the last three months, in other words, uh, up, to this, up to the end of six months, uh, meaning uh, up to the end of the second trimester. After that point, the child was too far developed. You weren't allowed to do it. Rabbi Moshe Feinstein said, that the Tzitz Eliezer used extremely harsh words. He said that Tzitz Eliezer will have to seek forgiveness from God, for God for allowing this type of murder. And Rabbi Feinstein said, absolutely not. You cannot abort even for the most serious genetic defect unless the mother herself might commit suicide. You know, you're back to the psychological stress. Uh, at so any point in the pregnancy, at any point in the pregnancy. Why? Because he said there's an issue of abortion. Uh, there is no heter. Abortion potential. So what's, what's the issue? Well, the, the issue is d d destroying a potential. What's the potential in Oh, what, when does it come? I'm saying, like, wh why is. Well, well if, you're, if you're asking me, no, no, no. If you're asking me what is the source for the issue of abortion, yeah. uh, so, so the Gemara says that the source is actually a verse in Parshas Noach where it says, he who spills the blood, Adam ba'adam, he who spills the blood of a person in a person. And what is a person in a person? 
That's a fetus. So there is an issue of, of, of abortion. Um, so this is a big machlokes. So again, just to summarize this, I, I'm going to go over some more details, but I just want you to get a, a, a broad outline. Uh, situation, so abortion is normally forbidden. It is permitted if the mother will physically be endangered because of the pregnancy. It is permitted if the mother is either suicidal or likely to hurt others, like your other children, because of psychological stress and trauma. Right? Those are two cases where it's permissible. It is impermissible, for sure, for genetic defects like mental retardation, Down syndrome, or the like, impermissible. Uh, and for things like Tay-Sachs is a big argument, where Rabbi Eliezer Waldenberg did permit it, but Ramosha Feinstein and most halachic decisors uh, did not uh, permit it. Uh, and uh, that's why Rabbi Feinstein was actually against amniocentesis. He was against genetic testing because he said, what's the point of knowing about genetic defects in a fetus if it cannot permit an abortion decision? In secular society, people want to find out because they make abortion decisions based on that. Uh, but Rabbi Feinstein said you were not allowed to make an abortion decision uh, based on uh, genetic uh, malformations and, and the like. Now, one other thing. There is some opinion that says abortion is permitted within the first 40 days. It's not even called abortion. Uh, after conception. Why is this so? Actually, it's actually going to be relevant to this week's Parsha. This week's Parsha, you'll recall, talks about the laws when a woman gives birth to a child. Do you remember? I don't know if you read that yet. So what does the Torah say in the time of the temple, in the time of the Mishkan? So if a woman gave birth to a boy, she brought a karban in the Beis HaMikdash on the 41st day after birth. And if she gave birth to a girl, she brought a korban to the Beis HaMikdash on the 81st day. So the period for a girl is double that of a boy. That's correct. What? I, I don't mean I don't mean a neither period. Well, 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 the truth is, okay. Let me explain something. There are two different there are two different laws here. There is a and both of them are double. There is a seven and a fourteen, and then there's a thirty three and a sixty six. Here, here's how it works. Uh, when a man no, no, when a woman gives birth to a girl, she is forbidden to be with her husband for fourteen days. When she gives birth to a boy, she's forbidden to be with her husband for seven days. That's the 14 and the seven. Then, in addition, there is another 66 days for a girl and 33 days for a boy, where although she could be with her husband, she's not allowed to go to the Beis HaMikdash. So that means that for a boy, she cannot go to the Beis HaMikdash for 40 days, and for a girl, she cannot go to the Beis HaMikdash for 80 days. For a girl, it's just when after she... A woman gives birth two weeks, she can't be with her husband, and then she can. Yes. So bleed for those entire two weeks. Well, well uh, let me put it this way. This is assuming that she's not bleeding. If you want to know the truth, uh, generally speaking, a woman is not with her husband typically for more than a month after childbirth because she's still bleeding. Uh, the halacha says the minimum amount is 14 days for a girl and seven days for a boy. But those minimums, I've never, I've never... 
uh, had a case that I'm familiar with where those minimums were complied with. Uh, typically, a woman does not go, first of all, even physically, a woman doesn't want to go to the mikvah, but generally speaking, a woman cannot go to the mikvah for at least a month or five weeks or six weeks after no. childbirth. So these minimums are, are never really followed today. But yeah, the minimum is seven days not with the husband for a boy, 14 days not with the husband for a girl, and then another 33 days for the boy not to go to the temple, which is 40 altogether, and another 66 days for the girl not to go to the temple, which is 80 altogether. So on day 41 for a boy, and on day 81 for a girl, the woman brings a korban in the Beis HaMikdash. She brings a korban. Now, why does a woman bring a korban after childbirth? So you might figure, the most logical thing you'd figure is Thanksgiving offering. Toda. No? She actually brings a sin offering. Achatas. Achatas? Why does she bring a sin offering after childbirth? The answer is, Rashi says, because to atone that she might have sworn while she was in labor, she's never going to have kids again. It hurts too much. Therefore, she has to bring a sin offering as an atonement. But here is the other proof that it's not a Thanksgiving offering, because the rule of korban is not only a live birth. The rule of korban is even a stillbirth. So if, God forbid, a woman gave birth to a dead baby, she would still have to count the 7 and the 33 and the 14 and the 66 and bring a korban. So this is not just for live births. This is for miscarriages as well. But the Gemara says, if she miscarriage carries within 40 days of conception, it wouldn't even be felt as a miscarriage, but it's kind of a discharge. Within 40 days of conception, she does not bring a korban because within 40 days, the embryo is treated as mere water. It doesn't have the status of any type of human life yet. Now, therefore, now, now, keep in mind, the passage I, told, I, I quoted to you is not about abortion. It's about the sacrifice of a woman in childbirth. But some opinions extrapolate from there, and they say, oh, if it's only called water, the abortion laws are not going to apply on the fetus or the embryo less than 40 days. Now, this is going to be very important when you consider things that are called like the morning after pill. Now, the morning after pill, right, a woman uh, had relations, and she takes something after uh, intercourse to prevent implantation. Now, again, the way this works is it doesn't prevent fertilization like an IUD. It just uh, prevents the fertilized egg from implanting on the wall of the uterus, or it dislodges it from the wall of the uterus. Now, that's technically abortion, right? That's not contraception, because you're taking a fertilized egg and you're dislodging it. And yet, some opinions will permit it, because it's less than 40 days. Again, again, that's a machlokas, but at least it's an area to be aware of. And again, most of the time, a woman is not going to be aware of her pregnancy less than 40 days. But in the event that she is, some would allow abortion, yeah. Why is the wait time for a Yes, that's a fascinating question. Uh, why is everything about a girl double 
that of a, of a boy. So that's very fascinating. So Rav Hirsch says a very interesting explanation. He says, anatomically, uh, when a boy is born, all you have is a boy. One, one person is born. When a girl is born, at birth, she is born with all of the eggs that she will ever produce. So, so in a sense, she's treated as a multiple life. That in, there, there is her life, and there is the life that is within her. You see, and therefore we treat it as if two entities were born. So that's why the theory is, is doubled. In fact, do you know that they actually use aborted fetuses to get eggs for egg donations? Quite an amazing thing. Uh, you can have an unborn baby that is the mother of countless descendants. Yeah, if it's if it's a if it's a uh, uh, a uh, third trimester abortion. If it's, well, it's allowed if the mother's health. Yeah, yeah. In the United States, it's allowed. I mean, they're very rarely allowed. So, like, well, usually allowed in the case of, like you said, like a genetic. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. You wouldn't want to use the eggs then, but but you know, sometimes no. Well, sometimes the mother has a health. The mother has a heart condition or something. I mean, there are there are cases for medical reasons. So it would be if it was done in the case of where the mother did it for her. Yeah, for her health. For her health. Yeah. And yeah. that the fetus is right. viable? Right, that's correct. So under those circumstances, you can take eggs from an aborted fetus, someone that was never born, and they can be donated, and you have a lot of eggs there. You can donate thousands of eggs to infertile women who can have children uh, based on those eggs. So when somebody says, uh, who, is your, who is your mother, who is your grandmother, uh, you'll say, oh, my grandmother was never, was never born. Uh, she never existed in this world, but she was the one that I am the descendant of. Right, so a lot of a lot of crazy, crazy things. Okay, so uh, this, we did we did a lot of stuff today. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go into a little more detail, but I want you to just get an overview of this very important difference. Again, the the, the main idea here is birth control does not require life-threatening situations. You know, stress, you know, you can get a tarim based on stress, financial difficulty, and the like. But abortion is much, much stricter, and you really do have to have a bikuach nefesh type of heter to justify abortion, unless it's less than 40 days. Then you don't even need a Well, according to the opinions that permit it, you know, they'll, they'll allow it, but, but not everybody... Most of the time, you're not going to know. Most of the time, you won't know. But it may be relevant uh, just in case, like a morning after pill or the like. Yeah. Um, so let's say I'm birth control, like the tubulation. Yeah. What about after menopause when you're anyway? Yeah, so, so that's, the point, and that's the point that I was making. This idea of uh, anatomical, the, the Torah's prohibition of any anatomical cutting mm -hmm. is even if you're not fertile anymore. So even after menopause, the Torah prohibits Although the anatomical... Although, actually, why would you want to do it after menopause? Well, that's correct. The only reason I can think of is a cancer. And if it's cancer, then yeah, you can, you can do it. But what's interesting is, though, I'll tell you what's interesting. What's interesting question is, what about prophylactic removal? That, that's actually a very interesting question. Uh, you know, sometimes people who test positive for... Uh, they have cancer running in their family or their breast cancer genes or whatever it is, uh, BRCA... So they want to remove uh, the breast, let's say, before, you know, when they're fine, they're healthy. They want to do it prophylactically, it's called, before they get cancer. Okay, now removing a breast 
actually does not have a halachic issue. You know, if you want to do it, you can do it. But if they want to remove ovaries or they want to remove the uterus, now keep in mind that that is usur except if you have that sickness. So there's a very, very big shayla. Are you allowed to have a prophylactic removal of ovaries or uterus uh, when you're when you're not yet in the condition that is a life-threatening condition, so I'm not giving you a, a psak in that. You know, God's help, none of you should ever have to face that issue. But prophylactic sterilization uh, is not necessarily within the pikuach nefesh paradigm because uh, you're not yet in a dangerous situation. It's only to prevent the danger from coming. So that would be a difficult, that actually is a very difficult uh, question. Okay. All righty. We'll stop here and uh, we'll continue next week. Y'all have a good Chodesh uh, Tov and take care. Thank you. Thank you.